Our Lord Jesus said to the author of 1 Peter, Peter himself, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said back, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to, me, said to Jesus, yes, you know I love you. And Jesus said to Peter, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved this third time of him saying, do you love me? And said, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus told the author of 1 Peter, shepherd the flock. But what is a shepherd? Well, the definition of cliche could be a phrase or opinion that's overused and betrays the original intent. So we hear it so much that we don't actually think about um, what they're saying. For instance, when you hear writings on the wall, how many of you think about Daniel chapter 5 and the feast? Or when you hear chip on your shoulder, how many of you actually think of a formal declaration where people would put a chip and say, knock it off, and they knock it off in a minute, all right, we're fighting now. Well, most of us don't think about those things because we use it so much. And in the same way, in our context in the church, uh, we might not think about what a shepherd actually is. In the ancient world, the imagery of a shepherd would be a very strong one. Think about, in our context, here in Ketchikan, uh, fishing, boats, extra tufts. Like, if a preacher were to talk about those things, like, we immediately have an image. Well, the same thing would have been true about the shepherd in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was an agrarian society, so they lived off the land. Um, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, Amos, all these guys from the Old Testament were shepherds. Um, I often think about, sometimes when I read passages like this, how interesting it would be to do a study and how God uses men like Abraham, made him be a shepherd for like 40 years before he was ready to serve his people. The same thing with David. He was a shepherd for many years before he served God's people. We think about Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Ezekiel 34 says, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains, and on every high hill, my sheep were scattered over the face of the earth, and none could search or seek for them. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus is always portrayed as the good shepherd. A matter of fact, if you think about it, like who showed up to his birth? Shepherds. He is a shepherd in the line of David, another shepherd who will lead God's people. He has compassion for people when he sees them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. He is the good shepherd. And today we will see he is the chief shepherd. It's actually the only time in the New Testament that Jesus is called the chief shepherd. We read in the Gospel of John that sheep obey his voice. His sheep come when he calls. And I was curious about this, never really taking the time to do it. So this week I did some YouTube searching, which is always fun, and just about shepherds. And I wondered about this. And I saw like in New Zealand and I think somewhere up in like Northern Ireland, and they had these case studies where the shepherd would come out and call the sheep. And it was kind of cool because it was really cloudy, big hills like this. And he would get out there and yell, yeah, yabba dabba dabba kind of stuff. And all of a sudden these sheep would just come piling out like you were calling a dog or something. Another one I watched in New Zealand 
Um, they took these students, I don't know if they were like on a field trip or what they were doing, um, but they had three students, and they all came and said the same call of the shepherd, and they had the sheep out in the field, and the sheep just kept eating grass. Shepherd came up, said the exact same thing, and man, they just piled in and ran, piled in around the shepherd. I thought, how cool is that? And I watched one more episode of these shepherds. They were somewhere in Asia in the mountains, but they were, I don't know, they had hundreds of sheep, and they were going along these little trails where they had to be single file, and they just filed right in, following the shepherd. And then there was another shepherd at the end, and he was carrying some of the little ones. And I thought, man, all of these are just strong images that we don't really have in our context, but should know about. In Matthew 10, 6, we see that the disciples are portrayed as shepherds themselves. They are commanded to go to the lost sheep of Israel. But then a few verses later, Jesus says that they themselves are described as sheep who are going out among wolves. So we see that shepherds in the church are also themselves sheep. Today we will think about the relationship between the chief shepherd, under shepherds, and the sheep. What is a pastor's role? Are the men who serve as pastors just unrestrained dictators, like they just get what they want? But on the other end of that is an overseer, the church's hireling, as D.A. Carson calls them. Someone we can just demand from, lobby for our views. They're really just the face of the company that has to do what the church says. What about the congregation's role in the local church? Is the body just a group of voiceless minions that get ran over? And they just have to hope that their pastor is benevolent or, or nice. And also, how should we respond to the overall message of First Peter? How should we as the church, church, the sheep, under the chief shepherd, live after hearing Peter's thoughts? Today we will wrap up a study of First Peter, a series we have called The Marrow of the Christian Faith, kind of a play on words after, off of something First Peter said about this book. And today we will hear the Apostle Peter's exhort the church to stand firm in the faith. So today we're going to wrap up First Peter. Next week we're going to have a couple of short series coming up. So next week we'll start a series in Jonah. It's just two, two sermon series. And after that a three sermon series in Jude. And then this fall we're going to go through the Old Testament covenant. Covenant. can't speak this morning. Covenants. Um, so normally I preach through books of the Bible, but this will be a little more topical and that will handle each covenant, so like the Mosaic, the Abrahamic, and go through. And that will take us through to Christmas time. And then after the first of the year, we will start a long series in the Gospel of Mark. And so that's kind of our plan going forward. But here in First Peter, we have seen that our faith is Trinitarian, that it involves the Father, the Son, and Spirit, each person of the Godhead. The church is to strive for holiness, to be holy as God is holy. To understand that persecution will come, do not think it is strange, but we are to endure that persecution. Honor the government, but fear God. That God has a good plan for marriage for his people. We see the conduct of the pilgrim family, and that Christ's sacrifice was perfect, what we call high Christology. The text I would like to draw your attention to today is 1 Peter chapter 5. We will read the entire chapter. Closing out our series in 1 Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 5, starting in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder 
and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those to devour, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. In today's text, we find three timeless um, calls from the Apostle Peter to believers in Asia Minor. First, we see that Peter gives instruction to the overseers to shepherd faithfully. Peter gives instruction to the congregation to humbly submit. And Peter gives instruction to the church to stand firm in the faith. Again, Peter gives instruction to the overseers to shepherd faithfully, to the congregation to humbly submit, and to the church as a whole to stand firm in the faith. Peter gives instruction to the overseers to shepherd faithfully. So linking this text to what we read last week about suffering, Peter starts with, so. Schreiner believes that the elders or pastors are mentioned first because they are the most likely to receive persecution um, in their current context. And since judgment begins with the household of God, all of the church must live in a manner pleasing to God. Humility. It starts with church leaders, but then funnels down to everyone. The elder, pastor, overseer is to shepherd the flock in a godly manner. So looking back at verses 1 through 2, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, 
but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So Peter calls himself a fellow elder. He is here expressing solidarity with the sufferings of the elders in Asia Minor, but is a witness to Christ's suffering. So this is not just any Peter, this is the Apostle Peter, the one that has witnessed Christ's sufferings. The word for elder here in the Greek is presbyteros, which is where we get our word presbyter. You can think of Presbyterians. Um, they have a they call their guys presbyters. Um, but presbyteros is the word here that's been translated elder. It means pastor, elder. It's interchangeable. Um, it's not one or the other. It can be either one. But it is for those who oversee, oversee the spiritual health of the church. Those who function as preachers, as teachers, as leaders, the shepherds, if you will, are who we're talking about here. It is the word used throughout the New Testament in Acts and the epistles to talk about shepherds. And it is always found in a plural sense. So there's never a letter written to the elder or the pastor at such and such in place. It's always plural. So there's a plurality of presbyteros or the elders or pastors. Compared to biblical church government, here in the West, we often have a highly complex system. Really, there are two biblical officers. They are the elders or pastors and the deacons. We see this clearly in Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. There again, plurality, two offices. Elders oversee spiritual welfare and deacons oversee the temporary ministries. So by temporary, I mean the building um, physical needs, hospitality, uh, specific ministry areas. Think Acts 6, where the apostles say it's not right for us to neglect preaching and teaching to serve tables. Meaning, can mean money, may possibly, or also could mean actually serving food to the body. Things you may or may not have, those temporary ministries. In many SBC churches, the model we often find is a single pastor and deacons serving as elders. That's how it often is found. I once had an older believer tell me when I was a new Christian in the church that if we would not translate literated words in church history, that we'd have been better off. Instance of this is baptizo, which is the word we get baptized. It literally means immerse or dip. So if you look at old uh, Greek language, it could also apply to a ship that sank. I always say, how many more Baptists might we have if we had translated baptizo, immerse, rather than transliterated, baptize. Well, we find the same thing with deacon. It comes from the word uh, dikaianos, or servant. So it's not just an office in the New Testament. It's a word that means servant. Uh, a prime example of this in the original language in Greek is when we read about Jesus, and it says, the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon. That's what that means. So it literally means servant. But... In our church constitution, I'm kind of laying out a lot here so that this makes more sense as we go through it, but in our church constitution, our deacons lead the church along with the lead pastor. Our deacons review the spiritual welfare of the church with the pastor. Our deacons guard the spiritual unity of the church alongside the lead pastor. They oversee discipline of members alongside the lead pastor. They oversee who fills the pulpit. And our deacons 
Phillips have filled the pulpit when you have been without a pastor. So I say all that to say, when we read overseers, you sh- in our church context, you should be thinking also of deacons. So not just Ben and I, but also the deacons, those who are over spiritual welfare of the church. All right, so I went through all that to get to where we're going here. So in verse 2, Peter explains the task of elders or overseer is to shepherd the flock. They are not to be like the shepherds in Ezekiel 34 who only cared for their own needs, but they are to feed and to lead the sheep. The message that we know from John's gospel would be close to Peter's heart when Jesus, before he ascended, said, feed my sheep to lead them. They are called the flock of God. So if you are here and you are a spiritual leader, this is not your flock. This is God's flock. It does not belong to me. It does not belong to you. This is God's flock. Acts 20, 28 says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained by his own blood. So the church does not belong to any pastor. Jesus has bought the church with his blood. So overseer, you are responsible to shepherd according to God's rules. Oversee, supervise, and teach the scriptures and nothing less. And not out of a position of greed. Shepherding is not just another job. I think I told you one time that all of us interns kind of gaping mouths shocked one time at our, our pastor when I was in seminary, who was a very kind and godly man, said, if I ever hear of an elder um, applying for a job that, where I'm the pastor, and he says, I don't have time to read the Bible for my own. He said, as far as I'm concerned, the interview is over. He said, because if you are not feeding your own soul, then shepherding is just a job to you. The church is not a way for a man to skim money out of an account. God help the shepherd who ever uses a ministry to supplement his own lifestyle or to seek some kind of shameful game. The Bible does say, though, that those who teach and those who preach are worthy of double honor. The Bible says, especially if they are involved in the preaching and teaching ministry of the local church. But his vocation is one of tending the creator's people of Tending the sheep. And he should do so with a measure of fear and trembling. Not because of what people might do to him, but because of God. A genuine Christian leader desires to serve. It says here in the text, eagerly, those who desire God to serve God's people desire a noble task. We read that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But look with me at chapter 3 here, or verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So a genuine shepherd is not domineering. Just as a husband cannot coerce his wife into submission, we read that a few chapters ago, the shepherd must not force the church to be subject to him. But now we have to be careful with that because the church is not the bride of the shepherd. The church is the bride of Christ. We are just under shepherds. We are just messengers. But we cannot force anyone to submit to us. Look, Jesus will not look fondly on those who take advantage of or coerce his bride. Do not abuse the bride of Christ. If you 
are here and oversee the spiritual welfare of the church. But church, you're to be a Berean. This is not blind obedience. As I have told you and I will continue to tell you, have your Bibles open. Have them on your lap. How do you know if you have a good pastor? Your Bible is your standard. It's not whether or not you like him. Your Bible is your standard, not your feelings. Do not submit to false teaching, church. Galatians 1. Now, if you, if you read the email, if you haven't, you can go back this afternoon and watch it. I sent a short clip out, or rather Rebecca sent it out for me, um, about Mark Devers, about four minutes long. He's talking about Baptist congregationalism. So what we are congregationalists here as Baptists. And he uses the expression that I have used before. I think it's a really good one. And that you are the emergency brake. So overseers, they're the wheel, right? We're guiding spirituality of the church. Like we're, we're, we're teaching the word. But you're the emergency brake. So as soon as I start saying things that are outside of the faith, you're supposed to pull that brake. An overseer uses his authority to serve and rightly direct the flock, not to boss people around. A shepherd cannot oversee for an ego boost or to lord your authority over people. Jesus talks about that. The Gentiles seek after those things. But a shepherd must be a spiritual role model. He must be a man of the word. He must strive for holiness. Now, it's not going to be perfectly holy, just as you are not perfectly holy, but he must be striving for holiness, and the word must be his guide. Paul writes to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. Or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Listen here. Paul says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And also rebuke those who contradict it. That last line, I'm going to read it again. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. It doesn't make stuff up. It's the trustworthy word that is taught. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, but also rebuke those who contradict it. An overseer must not be arrogant. Must be holy, upright, striving for those things. Overseers must hold to the trustworthy word. And he has to be able to teach it. He has to know sound doctrine. He has to know the Bible. Friends, if you haven't figured this out on, or from me or yet, the Bible doctrine, biblical doctrine is important. It is super important to the church. And an overseer must be able to rebuke those who contradict it. Contradict it. We don't like that a lot. We want to just love everyone, but... Right here we see in the word that if someone is teaching that which is outside the faith, an overseer must be able to rebuke that person. Friends, this is a weighty task. Do not be found playing free and loose with it if you are an overseer. I had rather find out that you were experimenting with explosives in your garage 
than fiddling with God's people. I mean that. Explosives are safer. It's explosive for you to be messing around with explosives in your garage than fiddling with the people of God. Leaders are accountable. That's why there's a plurality of elders. So, so I mentioned that earlier. There's always elders, not the elder. There's always overseers, not an overseer, unless you're talking about one you're going to call. There will usually be a main teaching elder or a lead pastor. That just naturally happens in the local church. But there is a plurality of overseers. There's accountability built in. We often add programs and things that are unneeded if we just followed what the Bible taught. Because there's accountability beat, built in to the local church, according to the Bible. Ultimately, overseers are accountable to God. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. When you remove an overseer for false teaching, you are actually doing so out of love. How many of you think of it that way? You are keeping him from incurring more judgment on himself from a holy God. If you watch the Dever video, he said he will often tell his congregation, fire me. If you hear me saying something that the Bible doesn't teach, fire me because you're actually saving me from judgment from God. As a fellow elder or fellow overseer, it is my job to call you out if you are guilty of false teaching. And it is your job to call me out if I'm guilty of false teaching. John Chrysostom uh, I was reading about him. He's an old, old preacher. So like, we're talking like 300s, 400s. I don't remember the exact date. He's in the ancient church. Um, I really love him. And one of the things I love about him is he preaches just like I was taught to through books of the Bible. He didn't make up sermons each Sunday or, or, or like cherry pick around, but he preached through books of the Bible. But he kind of gets a bad rap sometimes from scholastic theologians because he wasn't engaged with a lot of the arguments going on during his time. Do you know why that was? Because he wasn't concerned with what was going around around the Mediterranean. He was a pastor, and he preached to his church. He shepherded his flock rather than getting into this high arguments that were happening around. Now, saying that those things are bad for some people, but if you're a pastor, right here is where our thoughts and our hearts need to be. The Bible and the sheep we are called to shepherd. While Christ will not look favorably on those who abuse his bride, he rewards those who serve faithfully according to his word. Look with me in chapter or verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Here Peter reminds the overseers what will come of their faithful service. In the, back in the New Testament times, uh, there was a crown that would be given to Olympic uh, competitors or to warriors. And it was like woven. You've probably seen it uh, like in pictures and stuff of like leaves, like a crown of leaves they would put on their head. Well, that was a much coveted thing in the old world. But guess what? It faded. It died. So when a first century person read this, they didn't know exactly what they were talking about. The person who serves um, as a overseer will receive a crown that will not fade, unlike those leafy crowns that they got in the first century. I love uh, the quote by Charles Spurgeon when he says, If God calls you to be a shepherd of the flock, do not stoop to be a king. Essentially what he's saying is there is no higher calling than to shepherd God's people for him. It is a noble desire, Paul tells us. If the shepherds lead in a godly manner, the church must humbly submit. If he is a man of the word, the church should submit. Look with us. This would be 
Point two, Peter gives instruction to the congregation to humbly submit. So the pastor does not make the rules. God does. The pastor doesn't get to make up things. But likewise, the congregation doesn't make the rules. God does. Look with me at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Close yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, if you like me, you look at this and you say, all right, hold on. We're elders and youngers. What are we talking about preachers and congregation? I thought the same thing. And so I probably spent the most time of my study right here trying to see exactly what Peter was talking about. Um, this is not just a issue of older and younger. It face value. That's what it looks like. But the word used for elders is presbyteros, which is not a word for an older person. It is actually a shepherd or a pastor. Um, so it doesn't mean an older person. The word younger does, though, mean a younger person. So I went through a lot of Bible commentaries over this um, in the last week. And here are some of the thoughts. So Tom Schreiner and Wayne Grudem are in the same camp uh, on this issue. And Grudem writes, the office of elder does not refer to age. It is probably because younger people were generally those who needed a reminder to be submissive to authority within the church. He goes on to say that just because Peter addresses young men, which in the Greek it's, it's, it's masculine, even though we don't get that in our English translation, just because Peter addresses young men does not mean other ages and women are free to disobey. If those who are most likely to be independent and at all times rebellious are commanded to be subject to the overseers, it follows that everyone else in the church must be subject as well. Karen Jobes, another Bible scholar, she writes that if this were merely an issue between older and younger men, Peter would have used totally different Greek words. But she states, rather it's between those who have seniority in the church and those who standing or, or those who standing qualifies them to be the presbyteri or presbyteros in contrast to those who do not those who are not elders that is to say everybody else in the church all of the church members Hebrews 13:17 says obey, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this with all joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Do you ever think about the fact that your pastors are going to one day give an account for you? I didn't for a long time until I read these verses. But that fact goes through my mind every week now that I will give an account for each one of you. And so that drives how I preach what I preach about, because one day I'm going to stand before God and give an account for every single person that I've ever pastored. You know, pastors often long to preach in big churches. Some pastors do. I'm more of a ch small church guy myself, but they want to be in a, in a large church. Well, here's, I love this quote by a Puritan, John Brown, who wrote to one of his pupils, who was a new pastor. And he said this, I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison to those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think you've had enough. 
In other words, it might be better to be a pastor of a small church because you're going to stand before Jesus, pastor, and you're going to give an account for every single soul, for every single word. Every time someone came up to you and said, well, I think, and you knew that it wouldn't really line up with the Bible, but you were afraid because you wanted them to like you, and so you didn't say what you should have said. Or for every time you came across a text and you knew it was going to be hard and people weren't going to like it, but you knew it's what the Bible said, and you said, ah, and you kind of squirmed on it or glossed over it real quick so people wouldn't be mad at you. The pastor... You're going to even account for that kind of stuff. The writer of Hebrews says, Submit to your shepherds. Let them keep watch over your soul without groaning. Let them shepherd you without wearing holes in their stomach. The writer of Hebrews is saying, Don't be a stubborn sheep, but be a joy to shepherd. In contrast with rebellion and arrogance, Tom Schreiner writes, Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. God showers grace on the humble church member, but he sets his face against the proud. This quote sums up Peter's argument from Schreiner. The purpose is not to encourage obedience no matter what your leader might say. For if leaders give counsel that contravenes God's moral standards or violates the gospel, then they should not be followed. Nor is this verse suggesting that leaders are exempt from accountability before the congregation. We have already observed that elders are to be admonished not to use their authority as dictatorial, dictatorial rulers, but are to serve under, but are to serve those under their charge. Conversely, those who are under leadership should be inclined to follow and to submit to their leaders. They should not be resisting the initiatives of leaders or complaining about the direction of the church but be a joy to pastor. Don't be a meddler. Don't be a busybody. Look with me at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. As we've already seen in the text, God resists the proud. Because of all this, all believers in the church, overseers, everyone, must humble themselves before a holy and a sovereign God. If you want God's grace, be humble. Purification begins at God's house. Humble yourself now. Accept suffering. Accept leaders. It's God's will. Be faithful to him. Mighty hand is an expression um, that comes from Israel's deliverance from Pharaoh in Egypt. So just as God's people suffered in Egypt, churches in Asia Minor at that time suffered. Just as God's vindicated Israel, God will vindicate his church. Just as God cared for his people in the Old Testament, God cares for his people in the New Testament. Just as God gave his people in the Old Testament leaders, God gives his people in the New Testament leaders. Look at me at verse 7. Casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God is not an uncaring God. God loves his people. He has called you to himself. He has given you brothers. He's given you sisters. He's given you shepherds. He's given you overseers. Even your trials are an example that he loves you, that he desires for you to be holy, that he desires to burn the dross off to your pure. Cast your anxiety on him is an example of humility. Trust God in your situation. Trust God with your worries. Friends, if you do not trust God with your worries, it is pride. It is you saying, I don't believe God is going to take care of this situation. Now, I'm not saying stop wearing your seatbelt, 
I'm not saying go start playing Russian roulette or something crazy. But I am saying that when we show a lack of faith, when we needlessly worry, we deny the fact that we serve a sovereign God. As one commentator states, affliction either drives you into the arms of God or will sever you from him. I pray that each one of you are trusting him in any affliction you have because he will sustain you. Third, Peter gives instruction to the church to stand firm in the faith. Verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Be watchful. Be sober-minded. We heard these words before. Chapter 1. It's an inclusio, which is a a, a fancy word for a literary device used in the ancient world to kind of encapsulate the letter. It's like, a, it's like the frame around a, around a letter. So in the beginning, he said, be sober-minded. In the end, he's saying, be sober-minded. Realize persecution will come. Stay alert. Certain, Satan's on the loose. Peter compares him to a roaring lion in contrast to God. God cares for his church. Satan wants to devour it. God asks for your anxiety. Satan wants to roar and frighten. Christian, be discerning. Use the word as your guide. Persecution will get you to try, will try to get you to deny your faith, or at least make you be ineffective. If Satan cannot get you to turn from God, he wants you dead in the water. Realize that. There are spiritual forces at war. He wants you to throw up your hands and go watch TV. Don't do that. Stand firm. Resist the devil. Actively resist. All right. So we talked about holiness and we said no one is going to drift into holiness, right? You're not going to wake up one day and say, oh, I'm holy. Like through the indwelling spirit, you are going to have to pursue holiness. It's the same thing. You can't passively resist the devil. You must actively resist the devil. Stand firm in your faith. Continue to trust God. Know that he is sovereign. Look with me at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the grace of all, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will establish himself, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him, to him be, the, be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 10, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Tom Schreiner says this passage refers to God's effective work by which he induces believers into a saving relationship with him. You are called to eternal glory in Christ. We saw that in chapter 1 as well. Cause to be born again is how it was worded in chapter 1. God's calling is effectual. It is perfect in Jesus Christ. He is the author and he is the finisher of of your faith. The God who is called will strengthen, he will preserve you. A Christian will endure to the end. This thought again causes Peter to birth verse forth a doxology. He says, To God be all dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Christian, be of great cheer. You are on the winning side. Victory, dominion, all of that belongs to Christ. Long for the day when we are in his presence. Look with me as we close out at verses 12 and 14. 
12 through 14. By Silvanius, a brother, I, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So does Mark. So does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. I think verse 12 summarizes the entire letter. God has graciously saved us through his work in Christ, and we are to stand firm in it. Writing to a persecuted church, stand firm till the last day. Look at verse 13. It's kind of like first century code talk, so we get to decode a little bit here. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends her greeting. Who is she? Well, it's not a woman. She is the church, the body of believers. Babylon, uh, if you think about the Babylonian exile, it's kind of code talk for people with a Jewish background. It represents those who reject God. So she is the church. Uh, Babylon is actually Rome. Chosen. The Greek word here is eklektos, or the picked out, the chosen of God. This is another inclusio from chapter 1. So if you look over, turn real quick in your Bibles over to chapter 1. We read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. It's the same word there used for elect is used here for chosen. They just translate it in English different. It means the picked out, the chosen. So the elect, those who God has foreknown from the foundation of the earth. So in plain talk, basically what Peter is saying here is the church at Rome, who is also chosen, says howdy. Says hello. But so does Mark. This is John Mark, who accompanied accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey and caused a rift between Paul and Barnabas, if you remember that story in Acts. And tradition holds that he penned the Gospel of Mark under the direction of Peter, which we're going to learn this next year. In verse 14, we read, Greet each other with a holy kiss. Use your discernment during COVID. Something we're probably going to not do for the time being. And peace to all those who are in Christ, or the true Christians. So just a few points of application on this morning's text. First, shepherd the flock well. Pastors and deacons, I'm talking to you. Oversee biblically. You will give an account. Use the king's instruction to shepherd. Not your own ideas. Not your own thoughts. Not your own feelings. Use the king's instructions. But shepherd the sheep. Don't seek to corral the goats. Charles Spurgeon said, my job is to shepherd the sheep, not to entertain goats. So Christians. And ward off the wolves. Uh, one of the Protestant reformers said, every shepherd has to have two voices. One to comfort and encourage the sheep, and the other one to scare off the wolves. Second point application, humbly submit. Lovingly remove overseers who preach another gospel. Your pastors are not to be dictators. At the same time, your pastor is not a hired face of the company. He answers to God for the condition of your soul. Your pastor is not to be someone to box into a corner and demand your wishes. He is God's representative to the flock. He is there to ensure that the king's sheep are well fed with the king's food. He is not a, what do they call it, a custom order chef. You are to be subject to your pastors, to your overseers, until they prove they do not actually serve the king. 
Then, if they're not teaching the king's instruction, you are to remove them out of love so that they do not incur more of the king's judgment. Third, cast your anxiety on him. Worry is a lack of faith. Have faith in God. Understand that your plan may not be God's plan. So whatever situation you're in, he may not want you to be healthy and prosperity in that situation. So understand that. Stand firm. This is written to a persecuted church. And they are told to honor everyone, but to stand firm. Stand firm in what you believe. Follow Christ's example. Fifth, discern from the world and God's word. Don't let the world tell you how to be a Christian. Let God stay in your Bible. So as we wrap up here, who do you desire to follow? Do you desire to follow at all? Do you even want to be shepherded? Do you want a shepherd? Or do you want to make the rules? If you think such thoughts, it could be you're just young in your faith. You know, humility comes through sanctification, so it may just be you're young in your faith. But search your heart. Do you desire to chart your own course? Maybe the reason your natural inclination is not to follow is because you are not actually one of the king's sheep. You have not faith in Christ. So his leadership and that of his under-shepherds is going to be utterly distasteful. You will not be able to stand firm until you have faith in Christ. You will not have peace and security in Christ until you submit to him. Will you pray with me?